Welcome back. So glad you're here and ready for part two of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's short story. Doyle was knighted, hence the sir, in 1902 for his work with a field hospital in South Africa. Perhaps even more interesting than that was the fact that Sir Arthur had a firm belief in spiritualism. So much so that just six days after his death, thousands of people filled London's Royal Albert Hall for a seance in which the spiritualist medium claimed to have actually contacted him. And one more thought before we go on. The title of this story has B24 in it. Now, I've done some research. It's not a military plane that they're referring to here. Message me if you know. I am dying to know. I'm speculating that it is either the cell number or the prisoner number of our main character. He'd already served three years at the time of uh, the writing of this letter. So let me know. Here we go. Tuck in, everybody, and enjoy part two of the story of B-24. She worked upon me so, partly with her scorn and partly with this money that she held before my eyes, that I believe I should have yielded and taken my chances upstairs had it not been that I saw her eyes follow the struggle within me in such a crafty, malignant fashion. It was evident she was bent upon making me the tool of her revenge and that she would leave me no choice but to do the old man an injury or to be captured by him. She felt suddenly that she was giving herself away and changed her face to a kindly, friendly smile. But it was too late, for I had had my warning. I will not go upstairs, said I. I have all I want here. She looked her contempt at me, and there never was a face which could look at plainer. Very good. You can take these medals. I should be glad if you would begin at this end. I suppose they will all be the same value when melted down, but these are the ones which are the rarest and therefore the most precious to him. It is not necessary to break the locks. If you press that brass knob, you will find that there is a secret spring. So take that small one first. It is the very apple of his eye. She had opened one of the cases, and the beautiful things all lay exposed before me. I had my hand upon the one which she had pointed out, when suddenly a change came over her face, and she held up one finger as a warning. Psst, she whispered. What is that? Far away in the silence of the house, we heard a low, dragging, shuffling sound, and the distant tread of she closed and fastened the case in an instant. It's my husband, she whispered. All right, don't be alarmed. I'll arrange it. Here, quick. Hide behind the tapestry. She pushed me behind the painted curtains upon the wall. 
my empty leather bag still in my hand. Then she took her taper and walked quickly into the room from whence we had come. From where I stood, I could see her through the open door. Is that you, Robert? she cried. The light of a candle shone through the door of the museum, and the shuffling steps came nearer and nearer. Then I saw a face in the doorway, a great, heavy face, all lines and creases with a huge, curving nose and a pair of gold glasses fixed across it. He had to throw his head back to see through the glasses, and that great nose thrust out in front of him like the beak of some sort of fowl. He was a big man, very tall and burly, so that in his loose dressing gown his figure seemed to fill up the whole doorway. He had a pile of gray curling hair all round his head, but his face was clean-shaven. His mouth was thin and small and prim, hidden away under his long, masterful nose. He stood there, holding the candle in front of him and looking at his wife with a queer, malicious gleam in his eyes. I only needed that one look to tell me that he was as fond of her as she was of him. How's this? he asked. Some new tantrum. What do you mean by wandering about the house? Why don't you go to bed? I could not sleep, she answered. She spoke languidly and wearily. If she was an actress once, she had not forgotten her calling. Might I suggest, said he in the same mocking kind of voice, that a good conscience is an excellent aid to sleep. Well, that cannot be true, she answered, for you sleep very well. I have only one thing in my life to be ashamed of, said he, and his hair bristled up with anger until he looked like an old cockatoo. You know best what that is. It is a mistake which has brought its own punishment with it. To me, as well as you, remember that. You have very little to whine about. It was I who stooped and you who rose. Rose? Yes, rose. I suppose you do not deny that it is promotion to exchange the music hall for mannering hall. Fool that I was ever to take you out of your true sphere. If you think so, why do you not separate? Because private misery is better than public humiliation. Because it is easier to suffer for a mistake than to own to it. Because, also, I like to keep you in my sight and to know that you cannot go back to him. You villain! You cowardly villain! Yes, yes, my lady, I know your secret ambition, but it shall never be while I live. And if it happens after my death, 
I will at least take care that you go to him as a beggar. You and dear Edward will never have the satisfaction of squandering my savings. And you may make up your mind to that, my lady. Uh, why are those shutters in the window open? Oh, I found the night very close. It is not safe. How do you know that some tramp may not be outside? Are you aware that my collection of medals is worth more than any similar collection in the world? Ugh. You have left the door open also. What is there to prevent any one from rifling the cases? I was here. I know you were here. I heard you moving about in the metal room. That was why I came down. What are you doing? Oh, just looking at the medals. What else should I be doing? This curiosity is something new. He looked suspiciously at her and moved on towards the inner room, she walking beside him. It was at this moment that I saw something which startled me. I had laid my clasp knife open on the top of one of the cases, and there it lay in full view. She saw it before he did, and with a woman's cunning, she held her taper out so that the light of it came between Lord Mannering's eyes and the knife. Then she took it in her left hand and held it against her gown out of sight. He looked about from case to case. I could have put my hand at one time upon his long nose. But there was nothing to show that the metals had been tampered with. And so, still snarling and grumbling, he shuffled off into the other room once more. And now I have to speak of what I heard rather than of what I saw. But I swear to you, as I shall stand some day before my Maker, that what I say is the truth. When they passed into the outer room, I saw him lay his candle upon the corner of one of the tables, and he sat himself down, but in such a position that he was just out of my sight. She moved behind him, as I could tell from the fact that the light of her taper threw his long, lumpy shadow upon the floor in front of him. Then he began talking about this man whom he called Edward, and every word that he said was like a blistering drop of vitriol. He spoke low so that I could not hear it all, but from what I heard, I should guess that she would as soon have been lashed with a whip. At first, she said some hot words in reply, but then, then, she was silent, and he went on and on in that cold, mocking voice of his, nagging and insulting and tormenting until I wondered that she could bear to stay.
stand there in silence and listen to it. Then suddenly, I heard him say in a sharp voice, Come from behind me! Leave go of my collar! What? Would you dare to strike me? There was a sound, like a blow, just a soft sort of thud. And then I heard him cry out, Oh, my God! It's blood! He shuffled with his feet, as if he was getting up. And then I heard another blow. And then he cried out, Oh, oh, you she-devil! And then there was nothing but quiet, except for a dripping and splashing upon the floor. I ran out from behind my curtain at that and rushed into the other room, shaking all over with the horror of it. The old man had slipped down in the chair and his dressing gown had rucked up until he looked as if he had a monstrous hump to his back. His head, with the gold glasses still fixed on his nose, was lolling over upon one side, and his little mouth was open, just like a dead fish. I could not see where the blood was coming from, but I could still hear it drumming upon the floor. She stood behind him with the candle shining full upon her face. Her lips were pressed together and her eyes shining. And a touch of color had come into each of her cheeks. It was that that made her the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life. Oh, you've done it now, said I. Yes, she said in her quiet way. I've done it now. What are you going to do? I asked. They'll have you for murder as sure as fate. Hmm. Never fear about me. I have nothing to live for. And it does not matter. Give me a hand to set him straight in the chair. It is horrible to see him like this. I did so, though it turned me cold all over to touch him. Some of his blood came on my hand and sickened me. Now, said she, you may as well have the medals as anyone else. Take them and go. I don't want them. I only want to get away. I was never mixed up with a business like this before. Nonsense, said she. You came for the medals, and here they are at your mercy. Why should you not have them? There is no one to prevent you. I held the bag still in my hand. She opened the case. And between us, we threw a hundred or so of the medals into it. They were all from one case, but I could not bring myself to wait for any more. Then I made for the window, for the very air of this house seemed to poison me. A 
after what I had seen and heard. As I looked back, I saw her standing there, tall and graceful, with a light in her hand, just as I had seen her first. She waved goodbye, and I waved back at her and sprang out into the gravel drive. I thank God that I can lay my hand upon my heart and say that I have never done a murder. But perhaps it would be different if I'd been able to read that woman's mind and thoughts. There might have been two bodies in that room instead of one if I could have seen behind that last smile of hers. I thought of nothing but of getting safely away, and it never entered my head how she might be fixing the rope round my neck. I had not taken five steps out of the window, skirting down the shadow of the house in the way that I had come, when I heard a scream that might have raised the parish, and then another, and another, murder, she cried. Murder! Murder! Help! And her voice rang out in the quiet of the night time and sounded over the whole countryside. It went through my head, that dreadful cry. In an instant, lights began to move and windows to fly up, not only in the house behind me, but at the lodge and in the stables in front. Like a frightened rabbit, I bolted down the drive, but I heard the clang of the gate being shut before I could reach it. Then I hid my bag of metals under some dry branches, and I tried to get away across the park. But someone saw me in the moonlight, and presently I had half a dozen of them with dogs upon my heels. I crouched down among the brambles, but those dogs were too many for me, and I was glad enough when the men came up and prevented me from being torn into pieces. They seized me and dragged me back to the room from which I had come. Is this the man, your ladyship? asked the oldest of them, the same whom I found out afterwards to be the butler. She had been bending over the body with her handkerchief to her eyes, and now she turned upon me with the face of a fury. Ugh, what an actress that woman was. Oh, yes, yes, it is the very man, she cried. Oh, you villain, you cruel villain, to treat an old man so there was a man there who seemed to be a village constable. He laid his hand upon my shoulder. What do you say to that? He said. It was she who did it, I cried, pointing at the woman whose eyes never flinched before mine. Come, come, try another, said the constable. And one of the men's servants struck at me with his fist. I tell you that I saw her do it. She stabbed him twice with a knife. She first helped me to rob him, and then she murdered him. The footman tried to strike me again, but she held up her hand. Do not hurt him, she said. 
I think that his punishment may safely be left to the law. I'll see to that, your ladyship, said the constable. Your ladyship actually saw the crime committed, did you now? Yes. Yes, I saw it with my own eyes. It was horrible. We heard the noise, and we came down. My poor husband was in front. The man had one of the cases open and was filling a black leather bag, which he held in his hand. He rushed past us, and my husband seized him. There was a struggle, and he stabbed him twice. There, you can see the blood upon his hands. If I am not mistaken, his knife is still in Lord Mannering's body. Look at the blood upon her hands, I cried. She's been holding up his lordship's head, you lying rascal, said the butler. And here's the very sack her ladyship spoke of, said the constable, as a groom came in with the one which I had dropped in my flight. And here are the medals inside it. That's good enough for me. We will keep him safe here tonight, and tomorrow the inspector and I can take him into Salisbury. Oh, poor creature, said the woman. For my own part, I forgive him any injury which he has done me. Who knows what temptation may have driven him to crime? His conscience and the law will give him punishment enough without any reproach of mine rendering it more bitter. I could not answer. I tell you, sir, I could not answer. So taken aback was I by the assurance of this woman. And so, seeming by my silence to agree to all that she had said, I was dragged away by the butler and the constable into the cellar in which they locked me for the night. There, sir, I have told you the whole story of the events which led up to the murder of Lord Mannering by his wife upon the night of September the 14th in the year 1894. Perhaps you will put my statement on one side as the constable did at Mannering Towers or the judge afterwards at the county assizes. Or perhaps you will see that there is a ring of truth in what I say and you will follow it up and so make your name forever as a man who does not grudge personal trouble where justice is to be done. I have only you to look to, sir. And if you will clear my name of this false accusation, then I will worship you 
as one man never yet worshipped another. But if you fail me, then I give you my solemn promise that I will rope myself up this day in a month to the bar of my window and from that time on I will come to plague you in your dreams if ever yet one man was able to come back and to haunt another. What I ask you to do is very simple. Make inquiries about this woman. Watch her. Learn her past history. Find out what use she is making of the money which has come to her and whether or not there is a man, Edward, as I have stated. If from all this you learn anything which shows you her real character or which seems to you to corroborate the story which I have told you, then I am sure that I can rely upon your goodness of heart to come to the rescue of an innocent man. Good night.